Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. This week we have a very watery show for you. We'll be diving into the science of the oceans and in particular the effects us humans are having on those oceans and the seas around us. And to accompany us on this fishy journey you've got me, Helen, and Dr Kat. Hello. And so uh, when Chris told me that he'd be leaving me in charge this week I couldn't resist but take the chance to dedicate a show to the subject closest to my heart. Yes, those wonderful seas. We'll be finding out more about what lives in the oceans and what effects we're having on them. In the studio we have with us Dr Annalise Hagen from the Living Oceans Foundation who will be telling us all about her high-tech work monitoring the health of tropical reefs both from underwater and from the air. And hopefully we'll also be talking to Stan Harpole from the University of California in Irvine, if we can get him on the line, to find out more about the impacts that all the fertilisers we use to grow crops have on biodiversity, both on land and in the sea. And here's Kat with a rundown of what else we've got lined up for this week on The Naked Scientist. And today, as usual, we'll be giving an update on some of the latest science news. We'll be finding out if orangutans really are the king of the swingers and uh, why your brain is more like a worm than you may have thought. We'll also be paying a visit to the kitchen science guys who'll be showing us how a diesel engine works and finding out why is it that a bicycle pump gets hot when you use it. But would you have thought that you could actually use it to set fire to something? Um, and although he may not be with us in person, Chris is here in spirit. Uh, we'll be hearing from him to find out how chemistry is being put to an unexpected use in following migrating birds around the world. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, for some of us, feeling like we have the brain of a worm is a particularly common experience. But new research has shown that our brains may actually have evolved from those of worms, making the origins of the nervous system much older than we previously thought. Vertebrates like us, um, people with a, a backbone, um, are very similar to insects and worms in a funny way in that we evolved from the same ancestor. But our nervous systems are different and we're thought to have developed after we split from, from worms. But new research from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg now suggests that the last common ancestor of vertebrates, insects and worms already had a centralised nervous system similar to that found in us today. Now the last common ancestor we shared with worms and insects was a little simple creature called Urbilataria. And since then vertebrates have developed a nervous system with a brain and a spinal cord that runs down our backs, while worms and insects have this sort of rope ladder-like um, arrangement running down their belly. So how did these systems spring from one ancestor, this Urbilitaria, and what did Urbilitaria's nervous system look like? Well, to answer this, the researchers have been studying a really simple kind of sea worm called Platinaris dumeridlii, or something like that. Uh, I can't, okay, I You can't don't do know those. your marine biology, do you? What is it? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> she now either. Uh, Platinarius can be thought of as a kind of living fossil because it still lives in the same sort of environment as the last common ancestors we had, so that's Urbilitaria. And the worm also has a very prototype invertebrate nervous system, which is thought to be similar to that in, in our common ancestor. And so the researchers studied the genes uh, as they develop in these embryos as they're laying down the nervous system. And really surprisingly, they found that it was 
you know, really similar to the, the process of laying down the nervous system in vertebrates, in, you know, organisms like humans. So, in fact, the molecular landscape is, is virtually the same in these tiny invertebrate worms and us. So they, the researchers think that such a complex arrangement of, of genes and developing nerves couldn't have been invented twice in evolution. So it must have been the same system at work in, this, uh, in our primitive ancestor. So the next challenge is to figure out why we have our nerves in our back and why uh, worms have theirs in their bellies. But um, hopefully this should help to explain it. That's fantastic. I think uh, all those sea worms are very much overlooked and unloved and we should care more about them because they can tell us more about ourselves. It's fantastic. Love your worms. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to stay with a slightly genetic uh, and animal-related story here um, with just a new study out this week which has shown that for the first time heat causes lizard eggs to change sex by switching off a key gene. Now, that might not seem especially revolutionary but actually it means that biologists will now have to think completely differently about the way that sex is determined in animals. Now, before we thought that basically there are two ways that sex can be determined um, and they're very separate and they can one, only one happens at a time. So for humans and other mammals as well as birds and some amphibians, an individual animal is a male or a female depending on the sex chromosomes it inherits from its parents. So for us humans, females have two X chromosomes and a male has X one X and one Y. For other animals, sex is actually controlled without the help of sex chromosomes, but instead it's governed by temperature. So in some reptiles like crocodiles and turtles, the number of male and females that hatch out of a clutch of eggs depends on the temperature that the eggs were kept at while they were being incubated. But now researchers from the Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra in Australia have discovered that one of their native lizards, the central bearded dragon lizard, which sounds fantastic so cool. and looks pretty cool too, actually, um, they found that um, uh, they, they not only have sex chromosomes, but they're also affected by temperature. So if you keep your eggs at a higher temperature then the ones that should be developing into males based on their chromosomes are actually turning into females. Now, the researchers think that the temperature is effectively switching off the effect of the male gene, the presence of which makes an individual a male, a bit like the Y chromosome, the whole chromosome in humans causes maleness <laughs> to evolve, to happen um, in, uh, in the embryo of a developing human. Um, and so it's by switching off this gene that we think the unborn lizards become female. Now, as well as rocking our understanding of how sex is determined, this latest piece of research might also have really important implications for the survival of these species in the face of climate change. Because if we have too many females being produced and not enough males for them to partner with, it can really spell serious problems to the survival of species. So an increasingly warm world could be an increasingly female world, at least as far as lizards go. Oh, bad news for lizards. We have another tale of climate doom, um, but this time it's lemmings. Um, there's a common belief that lemmings commit suicide by flinging themselves off cliffs. You're telling me they don't? En masse. No, apparently oh, this no. is not true. Um, but like most of us, lemmings are quite keen to stay alive, but their existence, as well as those of lizards, could be threatened by climate change. Now, these little rodents, they live up in the Arctic, and the Wildlife Conservation Society thinks that they may actually be very sensitive to the impact of the changing climate up there. Now, a change in the lemming population could actually have really big knock-on effects in the wider ecosystem because they're a really important food source for a number of predators. So you know, Arctic foxes, birds of prey, weasels and even grizzly bears, they love snacking on lemmings. Sounds tasty. Um, and in fact, the population of these predators does change in response to, to rises or dips in lemming numbers, maybe as they all do throw themselves off the cliff or something. But the most important thing that lemmings love is snow. 
and they live really deep down in snow burrows. So you have to have enough snow. It has to be thick enough to insulate them at the bottom of their burrows. And if the weather's too warm or if there's not enough snow, then this snow layer isn't thick enough. And so poor lemmings are freezing. Um, so this is hopefully going to, you know, this will affect their population because they'll be freezing to death. Um, and also unusually warm weather in the Arctic means that you get freezing rain and cycles of freezing and thawing which can coat plants with ice, so the lemmings can't eat them. So they've got no food and they've got no burrows. Um, So next month, the Wildlife Conservation Society is planning to launch a major study to look at lemmings, uh, look at their population, look at the predators that that prey on them, and see how these are changing as the climate changes in the Arctic. And it's part of a large Canadian project called the Arctic Wildlife Observatories Linking Vulnerable Ecosystems, which has the absolutely fantastic acronym Arctic Wolves. Do you know, I'm I'm thinking they may have come up with their acronym and worked backwards, but we'll forgive them. Them for that. It sounds like a very important study and uh, one of those things that just increases our awareness of the t- changes that happen with, with climate change. Now, we're sticking with some creatures, bigger furry ones this time. We do have a very animal-based show this week, so I hope that's all right with our listeners out there. But uh, as a famous character in a great Disney cartoon once sang, it turns out that the orangutans really are king of the swingers because they know just the right way to swing their way through the forest without wasting too much energy. Now, that's according to a new study published this week by a team of scientists from Birmingham University here in the UK. Now, to get around a forest and move across the gaps between trees, orangutans can't just climb along to the end of a branch and grab onto another one because they're just too big and the thin ends of the branches just wouldn't hold their weight. So, And also dropping down to the ground, walking along to the next tree and climbing back up another tree or perhaps up a vine that they could swing on, rather lovely. Um, That's also not a great option because it also exposes the orangutans to predators on the ground like tigers, if there are any of them, happen to be around. Or left. Uh, Any left, (laughs) yes. uh, I was trying to make this more of an upbeat story, but uh, it always comes back to it, doesn't it? Anyway, so um, instead what scientists watching the orangutans in the wild have discovered is that the great orange apes bridge the gaps between trees by choosing young springy trees with bendy trunks which rock backwards and forwards in any direction they want to, a technique known as tree sway. And if they swing far enough, they can then grab onto the next tree relatively effortlessly and continue their journey. Now, the researchers estimated that the orangutans use about half the energy using their tree sway method compared to jumping directly between trees and only one-tenth of the energy they would need if they were to climb all the way down to the ground, walk across and climb up the next tree. So there you go. King of the swingers. I think that's such a lovely idea of a researcher sitting in a forest watching orangutans swinging about in the trees. It's lovely. Oh, they can use all the energy they saved for singing and tap dance routine. Excellent. Because that's what orangutans do. They do, they do. (laughs) You've been enjoying our news stories. Hopefully you've been enjoying our news stories. But if you're a budding science journalist aged 14 to 16, then here's your chance to hit the headlines. Because uh, Cancer Research UK is running a science writing competition called SciNews. And the charity is looking for the best, most attention-grabbing news stories related to medicine or health. So um, the competition is going to be judged by our top researcher and our Naked Scientist guest uh, a couple of months ago, Fran Balkwell, along with Tim Radford, who's former science editor at The Guardian, and John Tickle, the presenter of TV science show Brainiac. Now, if you can write the best science story, you could win our fantastic first prize, which is a year's subscription to the science magazine BBC Focus. You can get a day with the Cancer Research UK press team and a chance to record your winning story for the charity's podcast, which is actually presented by me. So you get to meet me as well. I mean, that's a great prize. Um, Second and third prizes are going to be science goodie bags, packed with books and all sorts of stuff. And all the winning entries are going to be published on the charity's website. So if you're age 14 to 16, living in the UK, then you can enter 
to this competition now and find out how online at www.signews, that's S-C-I-N-E-W-S, uh, .org.uk. But you better be quick because the competition's actually closing on the 30th of April. So get writing and uh, you could be a news journalist too. Oh, I think I'm a bit, if I was a bit uh, younger, I could also enter. Um, we've been having a, uh, I think last week on the show, we um, we were talking about how, why does it feel nice to stretch our muscles? And we didn't really know why that was. So we threw it open to you guys. And we've had a few interesting emails coming in, um, sort of giving us some ideas. I think we're still definitely on the lookout for the right answer. But anyway, we have an email here from Conrad in, in Canada, in BC, um, who says the reason, well, he's not a professional medical training he doesn't have any professional medical training, but he does have aching muscles um, to run after he's run through the beautiful parks and forests of British Columbia while he listens to the podcast of the Naked Scientists on his MP3 player. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your email, Conrad. And he thinks, well, he thinks this whole thing is about relativism, which sounds nothing to do with science at all, but it is, apparently. So not in the Einstein sense, but in a relative way, that if you're hitting yourself on the head with a hammer, it feels good when you stop. Um, muscles get sore from micro tears and trauma induced by exertion. And I'm I'm guessing that stretching, he says, when sore, probably has a temporary desensitising effect on the sore muscles that provides, for a few moments at least, a respite from the ache. Stretching or massaging probably is similar to when a nurse pinches you before administering an injection. The temporary stimulus over, which overstimulates your nerve receptors in the muscles and temporarily numbs the area from re- registering further pain. That's his theory anyway. What do you reckon, Kat? Anything there? That, do you reckon that's... I think there's... There's something in it, yeah. I mean, certainly you, um, your muscles are full of these kind of cables that, that pull against each other, so by stretching you are sort of pulling them apart. Yeah. And maybe you're o- overstimulating them. Could be, could be. We've also got this one here from Evgeny in Japan, um, who's wondering again why it is so good to stretch muscles. We all know it, we do it, it's wonderful. Um, and so he thinks, what's he saying? Um, relaxed muscles need soft and at the same time strenuous exertion. This operation requires for them to, in the normal daily use of our muscles um, blah 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 <laughs> sorry I must, can't read it all that's quite long um, but all our body needs to carry out for these kind of recovery operations is always connected by neurons within the nervous system which stimulate centres of pleasure and using a simple policy of bribery he says the central nervous system can train us by giving us a sweet candy every morning or then after to make us jump through the hoop for our own profit in result which we even didn't suspect before I'm quite confused about that actually but <laughs> I thought I'd read it out anyway and see if anyone else out there has any ideas at all um, about why it is that stretching your muscles feels so good The Naked Scientists supported by the Wellcome Trust now it's time to take a trip across the Atlantic for another instalment from the Science Update team. This week, Bob Hershon and Chelsea Wald will be taking us far away from the oceans to tell us more about some of the latest research being conducted in the driest places on Earth. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to talk about two deserts on opposite sides of the world. I'm going to tell you why scientists think the already dry American Southwest is drying out even more. But first, Chelsea has this report on a desert region in Africa that's been very much in the news. The war-torn Darfur region in Sudan was once home to an ancient mega lake, and some of that water may still be there. Geologist Farouk Elbaz is director of the Boston University Center for Remote Sensing. He says satellite radar data show that thousands of years ago, Darfur was a savanna with a lake the size of the state of Massachusetts. His team is certain that deep wells could tap the remains of that lake. And the reason we are 
absolutely convinced that this is the case is the fact that we do have a very similar structure just north of the area we're talking about in the western desert in Egypt, and it has plenty of water. There are now 500 wells drilled through it, and there is potentially something like 150,000 uh, acres of arable land, and the water that's available there could supply all of these uh, acres for for agriculture over 100 years. Since the brutal conflict in Darfur is in part over water, there's hope that this new source could help bring peace. Thanks, Chelsea. By mid-century, the American Southwest and parts of northern Mexico may settle into a permanent drought, one that for dryness could rival the Dust Bowl in the Depression-era Great Plains or the Southwest's own severe drought of the 1950s, the worst of the century. This is from climatologist Richard Seeger of Columbia University's Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory. He and his colleagues analyzed 19 different climate models used in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fourth assessment report. The data suggests that a drying trend has already begun in subtropical areas worldwide. It begins right at the junction of the 20th century and the 21st century. So the models say that, yes, this should already be underway. Seeger says that unlike past droughts, the current drying trend is caused by changes in air circulation due to global warming. A long-term drought would increase the strain on already overtaxed water sources like the Colorado River. That could force the region's rapidly growing population to reevaluate its priorities. Throughout the Southwest, it's not people that are the main users of the water, but it's actually agriculture, even in desert states like Arizona. So there's going to be some sort of difficult decisions that are going to have to be made about how the diminishing water resources get allocated. He also notes that although there's probably nothing we can do to stop the drying trend completely, restricting greenhouse gas emissions may potentially limit just how bad it gets. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next time with stories about the things that profoundly influence your buying decisions, like, of course, celebrities. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And we'll be hearing more from the Science Update team next week. But don't forget, you can check out more stories from the AAAS in the, in the United States on their website, www.scienceupdate.com. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr. Helen and Dr. Kat. And now it's time for our kitchen science this week. So Derek and Dave are with Abby and Holly from Carlson Manor Business and Enterprise College in Haverhill. And we're going to hear about the amazingly named Dave's Fire Piston. Hi, guys. Hello there. We've come this week to Castle Manor Business and Enterprise College in Haverhill, uh, where we're going to do a fantastic experiment, which uh, we wouldn't like you to try at home. Uh, you'll probably find it very hard to set up at home, but even if you wish to, please do not try it at home. OK, then. So with me, of course, is Dave. So what is it we're going to be looking at today, Dave? We're making fire without even any matches. Making fire without using any matches. And none of that kind of crazy survival type stuff either. This is pretty pretty crazy science way of making fire without matches. Okay then, uh, and also we've got two helpers here who's come from the college uh, to help us out. So could you guys tell me your names and what years you're in, please? I'm Abby, I'm in year nine. Okay, and yourself? Holly, year 11. Year 11. Okay, thank you very much for coming down. And uh, can I just quickly ask you what you like about science? Is there any particular thing in science you like? What about you, Abby? Um, chemistry. Okay, thank you very much. And yourself, Holly? I like biology because I'm a teacher. She's funny. All right. Okay. Is the teacher here? Oh, I don't know. All right. <laughs> she is. All right. She's enjoying that. Enjoying that recommendation there. Okay. Good stuff. All right then. Well, uh, we've basically got an experiment set up for you guys to to observe and tell us what happens and see if you can predict what's going to happen as well. Uh, so, Dave, what, what are we going to do? What have you got there? Firstly. 
Well, first of all, I don't know if you've ever at home tried pumping up a bicycle pot tyre really, really hard. Whether you've noticed the bicycle pump getting hot when you've been doing it, I don't know if you've noticed this, Derek. Uh, I have, actually, because I, I do cycle around generally, you know, so uh, I have noticed this. You guys, do, do you pump up your bike tyres at all, Holly? Not really. Oh dear, okay. Well, we've put the wrong people here, Dave. All right, okay. Well, we can assure you that when you pump up your bike tyre with the pump, then the pump kind of gets warm, doesn't it? So, so what's going on there? Well, if you look at the gas inside the bike pump in the air, the air in it under with a really big microscope, it will look like all these little lumps called molecules flying around it, and they're bouncing around all over the place quite fast. Now, I'm going to use a tennis ball and a tennis racket. So the tennis ball is going to be like one of these molecules. So, Abby, if you'd like to take that. And imagine this bike, this um, tennis racket is a bit like um, the piston in the bike pump coming down. Okay, okay so-, so we're imagining that the ball is one of the air molecules, right? Okay, that's cool. And then the racket is like the wall or alternatively the, the piston kind of crushing the air, the molecules that are inside there. So first of all, we're going to see what happens when the molecule bounces off the piston and the piston's not moving. So Abby, can you throw that straight at here? Okay, so what happened there, Abby? It bounced back. Okay, uh, bounced back, as you'd expect, I suppose. Just a ball coming back off a racket, okay. Yeah, now we're going to try it with the racket or the piston moving towards the towards it. All right, uh, Holly, what happened there? It bounced further. Okay, it went further. So this is as if Dave is actually playing tennis and he's actually swinging the racket and, and so the ball actually goes further. So if you imagine this racket hitting the ball, it's come, come back with a lot more energy. So if you imagine it with a molecule, that molecule's going to have bounced off with, even more, with a load more energy, so it's going to be hotter. That's if the piston is actually crushing the air, moving kind of towards the air, kind of compressing that air in that space. And similarly, if the piston was moving away, the ball would bounce off slower, so the air would get colder. Okay, so that's as if you throw a ball at a racket and you're kind of bringing the racket back and cushioning the ball and almost trying to catch it on the racket surface. All right then, so what are we going to do with all that? Well, so now we're going to do this slightly more extreme version of your bicycle pump. What I've got over here, I've got a big clear tube made out of polycarbonate um, with a little bit of... Can you see what's at the bottom of that? What, what can you see, Holly? Just small fibres. Okay, yeah. What, what is it actually, Dave? It's a piece of cotton wool at the bottom. And it really is a very small amount, you know. It's not like a, a bud of it or anything. It's a, a few little strands of cotton wool, basically. I've got a thing bunging up the other end, and I've got a piston with a big handle on it, so it looks like one of those big track pumps. Okay, so it is basically like a bike pump, but, but unlike a bike pump, it doesn't have a, have a valve for the gas to come out of. So basically what we've got here is a chamber, which is created by this kind of transparent tube that Dave's built. You built this thing, did you? Yeah, on my lathe at home. Yeah, yeah, one of your many kind of contraptions that you've built. Fantastic. Okay, and then um, basically what happens is the piston slots into that, that cylindrical chamber and basically makes an airtight seal. So now we've got basically a chamber, kind of a cylindrical chamber full of air. We've got a little bit of cotton wool in there and a big plunger, basically. So what? it looks very threatening. What are you going to do with that? Basically, I'm going to push down this plunger incredibly hard and we're going to see what happens. OK, and before we do that, Holly and Abby, I wonder if you've got any ideas. We're basically going to, going to really push that down and, and cu- crush the air in there, which has got the cotton wool in there as well. Any ideas what might happen, Abby? It might go up, like the cotton wool might fly up. The cotton wool might fly up. OK, good idea. And Holly, what about you? I think the air particles might move the cotton wool around. OK, move it around. OK, yeah, good guesses. All right, nice one. All right, well, we want you to tell us what you see when Dave does plunge it down. OK, here we go. Tell us what you see, guys. All right, what did you see, Abby? Fire. Fire, indeed. Holly, any more detail on that? It just sparked. <laughs> OK, I mean, basically, we saw the, um, the, the, the cotton wool bud. Well, it's gone, basically, as if by magic. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite good, really. It's completely gone. What can you smell? Smoke. Yeah, basically. It, we have vaporised it. Is that right? Have we basically made this thing disappear utterly? 
Well, basically, when we crushed that plunger down there, it heated up the air. In fact, it heated up so much that it was hot enough to cause the cotton wool to spontaneously ignite in the air. And it set fire to it and it burnt it almost entirely, producing smoke. And there's nothing there. It is literally like a magic trick. It's gone, and in its place is a little bit of smoke, basically. And also, we had the the, the, uh, the bung at the end just pop out slightly. So was that just because, I don't know, the pressure was so high or something? Yeah, the pressure was so high. It fell over a bit while I was taking it out again. Oh, I see. So there you go. Dave's technique needs a bit of work there. OK, well, there we go. So we've managed to show what you can do with, with well, a, a very souped-up bike pump, basically, uh, which, of course, we do not wish you to try at home. But uh, this is something that Dave's built and made very, very safe. So finally then, just quickly, is there anything that this, uh, that in reality that people might use that this relates to? In a diesel engine, this is how they get the ignition. This is how it causes the explosions. There's no spark plug. There's no match at the top of it to light the fuel and make it go bang. All it does is it compresses the air in the cylinder incredibly hard. It heats up enough to cause everything to spontaneously ignite, causing an explosion which fires the piston back down again with much more energy driving the car along. OK, well, thanks very much, Dave, for setting up that experiment. And uh, that's all from us here anyway in Haverhill. So uh, it's back to the studio and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. So there you go. That's how a diesel engine works and why your thumb gets hot if you hold it over the end of your bicycle pump. Thanks to Derek and Dave and also to Abby and Holly who are helping them out there at the Castle Manor Business and Enterprise College in Haverhill and Suffolk. Now Dave's going to be back next week with some more exciting kitchen science mayhem and you can join in this time. So all you're going to need is three jam jars, one full of jam, one full of water and one full of nothing, full of air. And if they're the same, I think that's uh, the same type of jam. So maybe get buying jam, get eating jam, but make sure you leave one jar uneaten. So that's next week's Kitchen Science. We have in the studio right now with us Annalise Hagen from the Living Oceans Foundation. Hi, Annalise. Thanks so much for coming along today. Hi, Helen. Hi, Kat. Nice to be here. Now, um, first off, I guess we will just have... Um, we will We've all surely seen pictures of colourful coral reefs in magazines and TV, but um, perhaps we could start off by just explaining what, what are coral reefs made of? What are, they, are they living? Are they dead? What, what are the animals that actually live on a reef? Well, yes, as you say, Helen, most people will have seen, um, if they haven't seen coral reefs firsthand by snorkelling or scuba diving, they'll have seen them on, uh, on television and in newspapers. Coral reefs are a sort of hot topic at the moment. Um, coral reefs are actually comprised of tiny animals called coral polyps, which lay down a calcium carbon, carbonate limestone skeleton. And it's this skeleton that over hundreds of thousands of years um, forms a very large reef structure. And within those uh, coral animals, they actually have a, a symbiotic relationship with a microscopic algae called zooxanthellae. And these uh, enable the corals to lay down the calcium carbonate skeleton. Um, and so they're a very important part of the coral reef ecosystem. And uh, so, and we see these beautiful pictures, and some of us are lucky enough to visit them as well um, when we're diving and so on. And there's obviously like a heap of other animals as well that live on coral reefs. And I mean, they are one of the most diverse um, ecosystems in the world, aren't they? They're kind of on par with rainforests. Yes, they're often uh, described as the rainforest of the sea. They host numerous, numerous coral species, fish species, invertebrates, all sorts, really. But not only are they very important for their biodiversity. Um, Hundreds of people around the world actually depend on coral reefs for um, financial gain through tourism, through fisheries, and the structures that they form um, are an important uh, coastal protection barrier against wave impact. And due to the location of coral reefs in the tropics, often these uh, surround low-lying areas, so these are a very important barrier against uh, wave erosion. Because actually you, um, part of your job working with the Living Oceans Foundation there is 
you went out to um, Aceh, didn't you, to look at the effects after the tsunami um, that was happening in the coral yes, reef areas. Yes, that's correct. We actually went out 10 months after the tsunami hit and we were on a boat. We went up the... Uh, west coast of Sumatra and surveyed on the offshore islands and there we didn't find actually a huge amount of damage and we were actually quite surprised over half the reefs we surveyed there was no tsunami damage at all Um, and that's actually the same as studies from Thailand so we were actually quite quite uh, surprised that the waves sort of passed over the coral reef itself and did have a very bad impact on land but actually the reefs are very resilient to, to such powerful wave energy. And uh, so I guess in a way it's what we found after the tsunami happened was it wasn't so much that the tsunami was having damage on the reefs like you found but more where we had where we have damaged the reefs ourselves by removing coral for buildings, for damaging through damaging fish techniques because people often use dynamite. Yes, absolutely. That's also another point is where um, they've cleared mangroves for coastal development. I mean, mangroves are very important for uh, coastal protection. So where the reef has been actually mined for the limestone for building material and also the mangrove has been been cleared um, as they've developed the coastline, that's where the worst tsunami impact was. Yeah, and I was going to say, we have some crazy fact, don't we, about the number of people who live quite close to coral reefs. It's something like, is it um, 8% of it's the world? It's about 8% of the world's population. Live within so 100 kilometres of a, a coral huge, reef. a huge number of people living very, very close to a coral reef. And they actually, I mean, most of them, their livelihoods are driven from the coral reef themselves. So the pressure that's being put on coral reefs at the moment is incredibly high. So we see, sorry, Kat, you go over I was just going to say, I mean, you're talking about coral reefs in the tropics. Do you find corals anywhere else around the world? There are corals, um, yes. I mean, you can actually find corals around the UK, for example, but they do not form um, large reef-like structures. I mean, we're talking about um, specifically tropical coral reefs, and these are actually the ones that have the symbiotic zooxanthellae, which, so they're um, called hermatypic corals, and they're the ones that lay down the calcium carbonate skeleton and build this huge, huge structure. So they're they're less important around islands like ours, the corals that we have, because they're just there. So are they little blobs? Well, <laughs> I could argue with some friends who work in the UK on the, on reef protection in the UK. I wouldn't say they're less important, um, but certainly, I mean, I don't think that we depend on them so, so strongly as a lot of people who in the tropics don't necessarily have any other alternatives to depend on. And there's also the deep sea corals, which, like Annalise said, don't have those a, those zooxanthellae in their tissues, and they live very deep down um, in the dark parts of the ocean. And we've already touched slight, um, a little bit on the problems that we're that the, the effects that we're having on the reefs around the world. Um, what particular, if there was, you know, three or four things that are really the main problems for reefs that we're we're posing to them, what do you think those might be? Well, the biggest problem we've seen in recent years actually is a natural phenomenon. I mean, it's the El Nino ocean warming that happened in 97, 98. And this had a very, very severe impact on the corals. And why this happens is because the water temperature increased and the corals essentially become stressed. And when they become stressed, they spit out their zooxanthellae, these microscopic algae, or the microscopic algae are actually degraded in situ within the coral tissue. And without these um, zooxanthellae, the corals can't actually live. And this is called coral bleaching. And it's called that because they turn completely white, don't they? Well, it's not the corals that actually turn white. It's the zooxanthellae that give them their colour. So if the zooxanthellae are not there, the coral tissue is actually translucent, transparent. And the white that you're seeing is the coral skeleton itself. 
Um, so an increase in water temperature causes this bleaching phenomenon, and this was very prevalent in 1998, especially in the Western Indian Ocean, where over 90% of um, some, some corals were bleached in the Seychelles and the Maldives especially. And uh, so... The, the corals can't, we say they can't feed um, if they don't have these zooxanthellae. And do they definitely die or can they actually recover? They can recover, yes. If the stress is not prolonged, then the corals can actually regain their zooxanthellae and they will regain their colour um, and they can go on living. Um, it might be that, but that their health is slightly degraded for a short term. Um, but if the stress is prolonged, say if the temperature stays very high for a few months, then, then the corals um, don't ever regain their zooxanthellae and they actually die. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And now we're having a little quick break from all this fishy talk. And we're going to delve into how chemistry is being put to a rather novel use, helping us to track the movements of migrating birds. Now, I know that everyone's been missing Dr Chris while he's off on his holidays, but here he is to tell us more. Every year, millions of birds migrate around the planet looking for a warm place to spend their winter and a cool place with plenty of food to spend the summer. But keeping tabs on where they go and where they've been isn't easy. We really need this information to help conservationists to protect threatened species and also to understand how diseases like avian flu might be spreading around. Until now, though, the process has been very difficult. Attaching trackers to individual birds can be traumatic for the animals and it can also weigh them down, especially if they're small. But now Durham University researcher Laura Font has found a way around the problem using chemistry. She measures the relative amounts of different isotopes or forms of the metal strontium in a bird's feathers. And because the levels of these strontium isotopes vary in a known way from one geographical area to another, and birds usually shed and then regrow their feathers before they migrate, the strontium in the feathers can be used as a kind of chemical fingerprint, telling researchers where the bird has come from. We've been um, developing a technique to measure strontium isotopes in bird feathers because um, there's a biologist in the Department of Biology of uh, Durham University that they came to us with a problem, and basically they wanted to know if we could analyze um, the strontium isotopes in bird feathers to track migration paths, because this type of work has been done, um, well, this type of analysis has been done in using bones of birds, but obviously you have to capture the bird and kill it and then get you know, subtract the bone sample. So what's the sort of scientific basis for, for using A, strontium, and B, feathers? Um, because the strontium ratios um, are, that we analyse in rock samples, um, they are very characteristic of the different lithologies and also of the age of the rock. So then if a bird is in a particular environment where there's a particular type of rock, then this ratio that is in this environment will be in as well in the tissues of the bird because these, um, the ratios uh, of the rock will be, like explained in a very easy way, will be trespassed to the soil and then the plants and all the insects that eat these plants and then the bird will eat these insects or snails. And then the same ratio will go through this trophic chain. And why do you use feathers? Because the migratory birds, they change the feathers when they are in the winter location and in the summer location they will change these feathers you know in each season so then each feather will 
reflect the ratios in the winter location or when they move to the summer location. So you can get a pretty accurate picture of where the bird has, has been, where it's come from yeah. and then gone to. These amounts of strontium must be absolutely tiny in the feathers. Yeah. How do you actually measure it? Uh, we use uh, this special technique with micro columns with a, spe- a special resin. And then we dissolve the feather, we pass it through these small columns, and then we collect the strontium fraction. And then we uh, load these solutions on filaments, and then we analyze it with um, a thermal ionization mass spectrometer. And that gives you a picture of what the, the relative ratios are? Well, so yeah, that-, that gives you a value. Then you also have to analyze soils and look at the geology of the areas where you, you, know, you think that these birds spend their winters and their summers. This is very useful for people that happen to like looking at where birds have come and gone, but there must be some important medical and scientific principles uh, which would benefit from this. I can think immediately we're all worried about avian flu. Avian flu, yes, because if we manage to define very well the migration routes of uh, migratory birds, then if we know that there's species that can potentially carry uh, bird flu, then if we manage to characterize these migration paths, then we will manage to find the origin of birds carriers of, of the flu. And that was our own Dr Chris talking to Durham University's Laura Font to find out how strontium locked up in a bird's feathers can be used to track where it's been without having to do it any damage. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. And now from the colourful world of coral reefs, we shall briefly move across to the link between the land and the sea and the effect that pouring fertilisers has on, uh, on crops has on biodiversity. On the line now, we have Stan Harpole from the University of California in Irvine. Hi, Stan. Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks so much for coming along on The Naked Scientist. Now, Stan, you describe yourself as a community ecologist. What does that actually mean? Yes, yeah, so I study... How how different species, how different organisms coexist, how they interact, what controls biodiversity, what contributes to loss of biodiversity. Cool, that sounds great. Now, in your latest uh, paper that came out in the journal Nature, um, you looked at the link between crop fertilizers and the number of species or the biodiversity that we find in grasslands in California. Now, uh, why did you expect there to be a link between fertilizers and biodiversity? Well, there's a long-standing theoretical prediction that the diversity of niches and by niche, I mean the different ways that species compete and specialize in, in nature. That the more complex their niches are, the more the num- greater the number of niches, the more species there should be. And that if you do something that reduces the number of niches, there should be fewer species. Um, for plants, then, they're competing for things like nitrogen and phosphorus, potassium, water, light, and all these different things. And what we're finding is that natural systems are really quite complex. Plants are competing for many, many different, different things simultaneously. As we add nitrogen, as we add phosphorus, we lose a niche, basically. And as we add more and more things, make them super abundant, they no longer compete for them, and we see a loss of species. It seems to me a little bit counterintuitive that if you... Um, I would also possibly expect that you'd get more species if you have more nutrients to kind of go round, if you like. So uh, it seems yes. slightly odd that this is the other way around. It does. In, in one way, it's been described as having too much of too many good things. And I see, Right. And so what happens then, if you add too much nitrogen, too much phosphorus, that you're, what's, what's happening then is the system is becoming limited by just one thing, usually po- possibly just light, um, possibly um, perhaps magnesium or something. But it becomes limited by just one thing, and there just becomes one way 
for species to differentiate and, and compete. And so there are just fewer opportunities for them to coexist. And that's what we're seeing in aquatic systems, too, is that as we add more and more fertilizers, what happens is it becomes very dark. The algae grow really quickly. Things become so dark that there's only one species that's best adapted to those really low light conditions that can, that can survive. And so uh, we have these, uh, you've got these theories about the, the interplay between fertilizers and biodiversity. And how, how did you actually go about testing those theories and what's actually happening in the real world? Yeah, so, so I work in grassland communities. Um, these are natural prairie-type systems. They have many, many native species, many exotic species, but there's fairly high grassland um, diversity. And then we added combinations of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and water. And what we found is if we added just one thing, that there wasn't much impact on diversity. And it, as we added more and more things, and up to all four things at once, we saw the biggest loss of diversity. So this is this is evidence for this sort of loss of niche dimension. So as we take away each one of these specialties that plants have, um, there are few opportunities for them to coexist, and we end up with, the, like in aquatic systems, the species that's the best competitor for really high nutrients but really low light conditions, and so just one species. And how long did it take for these uh, changes to take place? How long did you have to keep watching oh, for this these? Was, this was within two years. So it was very quick. Um, we've also looked at long, really long-term data sets, and these, this loss of diversity can persist for 150 years. There's a great experiment in, in the U.K., the park grass experiment. Um, they've been applying fertilizer since 1856, um, or, is, I think it's, or 1858. Some, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> and there's no recovery um, of, of species diversity even after all that time. So the, the, it can be a very long-term effect. That's amazing. But um, surely a reduction in the biodiversity in terms of field crops, because we're talking about fertilizers here. I take it these, it's these nutrients that you were looking at, nitrogen, phosphorus, are the kind of things that we put on crops, are they? That's the sort of thing we, we yes. do to fertilize the crops. But, but the problem is that they don't stay on just the agricultural land. Um, the nitrogen can volatilize and go up into the atmosphere and come back down as rain or, or precipitation. Um, phosphorus can rush, wash off into the into streams and then wash into rivers and then into into the gulfs and coasts and so on. And so they're very large dead zones, what they're called, these huge areas where there's been a lot of fertilizer input, tens of thousands of, of square kilometers. Um, all this fertilizer causes really high algae growth, causes really strong decrease in light. And then one way that, that marine systems differ from, like the grassland systems I, I work on, is that as all these algae fall to the bottom of the ocean and die, they decompose. And in the process, oxygen is depleted, and the oxygen then kills the fish, and this creates this, this dead zone. And uh, I take it that I'm actually pretty ignorant about just how much fertilizer we use globally every year. Is, is it really huge amounts that we're still using? I mean, we talk about organic farming. I imagine that's still really tiny proportion. But yes. fertilizers really are pretty, um, you know, used everywhere in huge amounts, are they? And nitrogen in particular, humans have become become... Oh, probably as big of an input of nitrogen to natural systems as natural processes are. We, we are one of the drivers of the nitrogen cycle now globally. And you think that also possibly there's a link to our burning fossil fuels and this sort of input of nutrients into systems. Is that right? Absolutely. A lot of nitrogen then comes from fossil fuel combustion. Um, these nit nitric acids then eventually come back down somewhere, and they're usually in places where um, nitrogen is not so abundant. And so we're increasing the abundance of nitrogen in systems that were typically pretty pretty limited in nitrogen. And uh, you mentioned already that we had this long-term study based here in the UK and that we haven't seen much recovery in that time. So if, if, we, uh, if we aren't seeing any, any recovery in systems, is there anything that we can do? You're finding out this, you know, studying more about the effects that fertilizers are having, but what can we actually do about this in terms of the impact it's having on biodiversity? 
Yeah, I, I think the main thing is to reduce the inputs of of nutrient pollution to to natural systems, and that can be changing our fertilizing fertilization techniques and in, um, in managed agricultural systems. It can reduce um, fossil fuel combustion, but then we can also try try to to manage um, natural systems so that we can you know find ways that we can remove excess nutrients if possible. There's been some study trying to restore natural systems by by decreasing the amount of nitrogen avail- available, and, that, and that's still work that's, that's in, in, in early stages, but there's effort along those lines. So still things that we can do. I wanted to bring Annalise back in at this point because um, okay. you already mentioned, uh, Stan, talking about the impact in the in the water systems and we're looking at species that, that tend to um, grow much more quickly under high nutrient conditions and, and uh, cause these sort of uh, dead zones as well. And But we know on coral reefs as well that if we add nutrients that we can have we can cause an imbalance, can't we, with, with algae growth. Is that right, Annalise? Yes, I mean, definitely. Um, nutrient impact will greatly increase uh, macroalgae on coral reefs. That's, that's, uh, what's ma- that's big, fleshy kind of... Like seaweed. Like yeah. seaweed, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, yes, and because coral reefs, with their symbiotic relationship with their zooxanthellae, they have to have light in order to live, which means that they're very restricted by depth. So generally, coral reefs only thrive in the upper 30 metres of the oceans. Um, so within this zone, there are lots and lots and lots of animals that want to live within this zone, and so competition um, for space is a huge problem. And so with nutrient um, enrichment, if there's more macroalgae, then that could outcompete the corals. And especially that will take over any um, bare surfaces, so coral larvae can't then settle um, and the coral reefs can't develop anymore. And we're seeing that quite a lot, aren't we? We're seeing reefs that are becoming sort of dominated by algae and then it's very difficult to shift back to a system where they're actually dominated by it corals again difficult. like you described. Yeah and one big problem as well is um, human impact of overfishing because if um, the, f- the fishermen are re- removing the her- the herbivorous fish which actually will control the macroalgal um, population if those fish are removed from the ecosystem then that allows more macroalgae to grow so that will further outcompete the corals. So it's all a big complex system indeed. Well, thanks so much, uh, Stan, for coming on the show for us today. Oh, it was, it was my pleasure. Excellent. And, uh, and we'll talk to Annelise probably a little bit. We'll keep her here in the studio. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. That's right, you're listening to a fishy episode of The Naked Scientist with me, Helen and Kat. And we have Annalise Hagen in the studio talking all about coral reefs and wonderful things that we can see, but also the effects that we're having on those ecosystems and the problems we're causing. Now, I've had a couple of emails here along the fishy line, some questions, um, which I thought I'd possibly throw out at this point and see if uh, anyone in the studio has some ideas on. They're both along the same lines. First, we have Jennifer from Cambridge who says, um, is it better ecologically regarding and regarding health to eat farmed or wild salmon um i don't know if Annelise has any thoughts on this i can certainly talk about this too she's looking a bit stumped <laughs> helen you know i'm a coral specialist she's you're a coral the fish specialist <laughs> okay all right well um in terms of whether or not farmed fish in general is better than uh, than wild fish obviously we we know and we can imagine the problems of um harvesting taking too many fish from the sea and not leaving enough behind for them to keep their populations going but there are also problems also associated with um eating uh, fish that's been farmed and um 
And partly we know problems like fish can escape from farms and cause genetic uh, pollution, if you like, by breeding with wild wild species. We also see farmed fish farms actually... Um, uh, they can if infect a wild uh, migrating salmon with parasites. There's actually a study by, from a un, from the university um, in Canada. Actually, I'm looking for which one it is. I can't remember. Anyway, um, it showed that young salmon, as they migrate back up rivers, and as they go past um, fish farms, they actually pick up sea lice, which can actually cause huge levels of um, mortality amongst those salmon. Um, so really, and, and the other problem with farmed salmon is that um, you feed other fish to the fish. So you're not actually cutting out the need to take any fish from the environment because you actually these are piscivorous they eat other fish yes it's true fish eat fish i'm afraid um so you're actually having to harvest you're still having to catch fish from the wild to feed the fish in the farms so it's a difficult thing i think personally i think maybe the organic farming is one way that at least it's a bit better because you're losing less chemicals which is another problem from farms which adds to the pollution um lower stocking density so they're generally a bit less of an impact but you still might have problems with things like sea lice but then you also have um the problem of catching wild fish i think if you do want to know more about which fish are best to eat um, you can go to the Marine Stewardship Council website um, because they are actually the biggest global um, organisation for uh, issuing eco-labelling, if you like, to say which fish um, stocks are sustainable. And one of them is actually the Alaskan salmon population, which um, which are certified as being sustainable. So you can eat them with what you buy them, I think, from many supermarkets in the UK, certainly. And um, they are doing less damage to the environment. So that's a good thing. Well, we've got a question. It's from Charles, uh, Charles Buckton. And he says, hello, I heard that there's a huge mass of plastic waste in the northwest Pacific. Do we know anything about this? I mean, what's, what's the story with, with plastic pollution in the sea? Well, I'm sure Annalise will back me up here as well, even though she is a coral person. But uh, no, that the oh, I can talk about plastic. Plastic in waste well. in the sea is is a very very huge problem. Plastic waste generally, but in the sea particularly, isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. And I've been very lucky in that I've worked on a lot of uninhabited islands, and it's really really evident when you go to these uninhabited islands, the amount of plastic waste that must be floating around the world's oceans because all the beaches are just covered in bits of plastic and always flip flops. My friend and I actually have a bit of a joke about this thing when uh, we were working in the Seychelles together and we went, went to lots of uninhabited islands and on every different island there were flip-flops, loads of flip-flops. Pairs or just odd ones? Odd ones. Now there's actually a, a friend of a friend in the Seychelles who has started doing some flip-flop art and she takes uh, different, uh, all different shades of one colour and uh, does a collage with flip-flops and sells them. Fantastic. Well, anyway, but on a serious, more serious note, um, yes, plastic waste is a huge problem. I don't know in terms of this particular one in the, no- the Pacific Northwest. That this there are going to be some areas to. where o- o- ocean circulation will obviously uh, bring together plastic in certain areas. I mean, that, I think that's all we can say. We don't know yeah, about the specific example. That's right. I mean, but, um, I think, and there's also, I mean, on a kind of positive note, that when there's things like containers that burst at sea, and I think there's things like rubber ducks, aren't there? That I've get definitely heard off. about rubber ducks floating then, around the uh, world's oceans. And then you can actually um, track where the currents are going because they're taking the rubber ducks along with the ocean currents, and that's one way of studying it, strangely. So, that, you, know, you know, in some ways we can get something good out of it, but there is a real problem, real problem with too much plastic plastic waste ending up in the oceans. But uh, Annalise, you started telling us a little just now about your wonderful times overseas. And uh, we did promise a little, a short um, description of your studying the coral reefs from the air. Now, what is that all about? How can you study something underwater while, um, while, from, while looking at it from a long way above? Yeah, well, this is a very clever technique, really, that's been developed. And on my last two expeditions, we were employing a 
a sensor called a compact airborne spectrographic imager. Uh, I think it's a posh digital camera, isn't Cassie it? Cassie for short. Um, and it's, essentially, it's a passive sensor that is fixed onto a seaplane and flown over an area of interest. And it records the amount of light reflected from different different things on the seabed. So it can tell you what's coral, what's algae, what's seagrass. But um, it doesn't actually tell you what it is. You need some divers in the water at so the time. So you still have to be there in the you water. You still have to Damn. be there, exactly. Yeah, so you go out and do your dives with your GPS um, and and then you basically collect data to calibrate uh, the data that's collected from the from the aeroplane. And I take, I guess, that way you get a lot more information than you would if you were just you diving can get on a its huge, own. huge amount of data. I mean, we collected uh, recently on a three-week expedition. We collected two thousand seven hundred square kilometres of data, that's which an awful is unheard of um, if you were just diving. That's fantastic. Well, I can imagine this must be a very exciting job for you. And I hope um, if you, anyone wants to find out more about the Living Oceans Foundation, um, then go to their website, which we have linked from our website, I think. But is it livingoceansfoundation.org? Yes, livingoceansfoundation.org. Yes. yes, so you can find out more about all the wonderful things that Annalise does. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week. On next week's show, we're going to be investigating the secrets in our genes with population geneticists Turi King and Bruce Winnie. We'll be asking, where did we come from? How do our genes make us who we are, who were our ancestors, and how do we use genetics to track them down. And we'll also be joined by Mike Majerus from Cambridge University to find out what insect genes can tell us about our environment. All will be revealed to the Naked Scientist next week, so if you've got any questions about genes and genetics for our experts, then email us at chris at thenakedscientist.com. And if you want to take part in next week's kitchen science, then all you need is three jam jars, one full of jam, one full of water, and one full of air. I think that just remains for me to say a huge thank you to our guests this week, Annalise Hagen and Stan Harpel, and to our co-presenter Kat and Petro, who's been doing a fantastic job on the desk there. And uh, just to remind you that uh, you can also listen to the Nature podcast, uh, which will give you a rundown of the latest studies in that uh, journal. And that's www.nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And of course, we've also got our new whizzy, bangy website ourselves. That's the Naked Scientist website. You can go on our forum. You can download podcasts. If you're listening on a podcast, you've already done that. But anyway, go and have a look. It's all fantastic. And remember to have a listen to us again next week. Thanks very much for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.